Before I read that, let me pray for us. Lord, we've just been singing that we will keep our eyes on you. And we pray that in this world in which we live, with so much turmoil and crisis and uncertainty, that as we look to the future, we will keep our eyes on you. And we pray that this psalm would help us to do that today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, where is the world heading? In 1989, uh, the acclaimed American political philosopher, Francis Fukuyama, he published an essay titled The End of History. And it was about his belief that free market, liberal democracy had won the day and that this would become the world's final form of human government. And for a couple of decades, it seemed like his thesis was pretty spot on and you know, this was clearly where the world was heading. Now, 25 plus years on from his prophecy, it's not looking so certain anymore. So political commentators are observing that liberal democracy is in crisis across the West Authoritarian states like China and Russia are becoming increasingly powerful. In the Arab Spring and in the Ukraine, pro, and sorry, in the Ukraine, pro-democracy goals seem to have failed. Then we had Brexit. We had the election of Trump. On both sides of the, of the Atlantic, we've now got right-wing nationalism in full swing. And in places like Thailand, Turkey, Nicaragua, democracy is backsliding. Islamic extremism is on the rise. And so, now whether or not you agree with what those political commentators are saying, the question still stands, who knows where things are going and where things will end up five years from now, never mind 25 years from now. And the threat of a major, major conflict (coughs) is hanging over us. We live in uncertain times, and that is unsettling. And who would dare to stand up here this morning, And to say with any confidence, look, I know where the world is heading. Well, I would. I would. I reckon I know. In fact, I know I'm sure. I know I know and I'm sure about that because, not because I'm some great political philosopher, because I really am not. I know next to nothing about these things. But because I believe in divine revelation. God has revealed where the world is heading. Not just to me as an individual, but to all of us in his word, and in particular here in Psalm 2. Psalm 1, Psalm 2 are an introduction, they are a gateway to the book of Psalms. Last week, Psalm 1 presented us with these two ways to live. 
We had the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And he was saying that each of us needs to choose. So as an individual, I need to make sure that I know where I'm going in life. And I need to make sure that I belong to the congregation of the righteous. To those who are right with God through Jesus Christ. Psalm 1 is individual. Psalm 2 is global. So Psalm 2 is saying, I need to know not just where I am going in life, but I need to know where the world is going, where history is heading. And I need to make sure that I am on the right side of history. We need to understand Psalm 2 is saying that the world has been promised to the Messiah. And he is on the throne and he will soon return. And we need to live in the light of that and we need to get our lives in line with that reality. But this reality that Psalm 2 tells us is not something that the world accepts. And that is where the psalm begins, with rebel rulers. And apologies, you don't have an outline. These outlines were done several weeks ago uh, before the barge went into dry dock. But um, an outline will come up on the screen. So firstly then, rebel rulers, verse 1. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalm divides up into four sections of three verses each. Psalm 1, you may remember last week, began with the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinner, the seat of the scoffer. Now this is saying, this is what that looks like when it goes international. So the focus here in Psalm 2 is not just on individuals, but on nations, on peoples, on kings, on rulers. They're raging, they're plotting, they're taking counsel together against God and against his king. So verse 2 says, against the Lord and against his anointed. So the anointed there is the king. And these rebel rulers are ganging up together. They're pointlessly plotting against God. The word for plotting there in verse 1 is actually the very same word in the Hebrew for meditating that we had back in Psalm 1 last week. So instead of meditating on God's word and going God's way, they're plotting how to go their own way. Notice that they see the rule of God and his king as being oppressive and restrictive and enslaving, and they want to break free from it. So in verse 2, sorry, verse 3, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This, of course, is the very essence of sin, isn't it? This rejection of God's rule. And it's an attitude to God that is summed up in that parable Jesus taught in Luke 19, verse 14, where we hear the words, we do not want this man to rule over us. Now the point here is that this rebellion against God and his king, it's expressed not just in individual lives, but it's expressed in history, on the big picture, the big scale. So in nations, in governments, in politics, in authorities, in legislation, on the big scale. We see this sort of attitude in the spread of anti-Christian religious extremism in the form of radical Islam. We see it in the West, don't we, in the spread of Darwinism, and secularisation, and this belief that science has done away with the need for God. We see it in legislation, which rejects biblical morality, in sexuality, in marriage, in abortion. 
We see it in the rise of authoritarian powers like China and Russia that oppose the Lord and they oppose his king. And the point is we shouldn't be surprised by any of this. This rebellion of the authorities against the Lord and against his king, it came to a head in the first century in the Jesus events. So in our first reading in Acts chapter 4, the believers quote these first few verses of Psalm 2 and they see them as having been fulfilled in the rejection of Jesus by the authorities. So they quoted these first three verses and then they said, for truly in this city, so in Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, so there we've got the kings and the rulers, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There are the nations and the peoples. And the believers then pray in Acts 4, they said, Lord, look upon their threats. Peter and John had just been imprisoned for their faith. The hatred for the Lord and for his king that the authorities have it spills over into hatred of God's people. Now that was true in the first century and it's just as true now in the 21st century. And every other Sunday in our services we pray for believers on the the world watch list of persecuted Christians around the world. We shouldn't be surprised by this, we shouldn't be phased by it, this worldwide persecution of Christians by the authorities, by the governments. It is an expression, it is an overflow of their rejection of the rule of the Lord and of the king that he has appointed, as Psalm 2 tells us. But verse 1, you'll notice, says that the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. They do it in vain. Why in vain? Why is it pointless, this plotting of the authorities and governments against the Lord? Well, the next section tells us. So we turn from rebel rulers to divine derision. If you look again at verse 4, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I don't know if you were watching it last night. Uh, maybe you are there at Wembley with the 90,000 watching the heavyweight title fight between Anthony Joshua and Vladimir Klitschko. Uh, Klitschko has a, a two-year-old daughter. Imagine that this two-year-old daughter went up to Anthony Joshua, who won the fight, incidentally. Um, he's six foot six. He's 17 stone, a pretty much pure muscle. And imagine that Klitschko, who got knocked out, imagine his two-year-old daughter comes up to Joshua tomorrow and says, I hate you for beating my dad. I hate you. And what I'm going to do is, I'm going to knock you over. And she starts sort of hitting his legs with her little fists. How do you think Anthony Joshua would respond? Well, I think he'd just laugh. I think he would just laugh. That is God's response to the pointless plotting of the world's authorities against him. It says there in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He laughs because he's in heaven, he is the all-powerful creator and ruler of everything, and rebelling against his rule, it's a joke, it's pathetic, and he mocks them. It says the Lord holds them in derision. Incidentally, um, Psalms are poetry, I'm sure you picked that up, they're poetry set to song. 
And one feature of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry is parallelism. That is to say that you often find that two consecutive lines are parallel and they express pretty much the same idea. And pretty much every verse in this psalm has this parallelism. So just look at verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Now the same idea is then repeated in a slightly different way in the next line. The Lord holds them in derision. See, it's parallel. And if you actually look closely, you get the same thing in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. Now, this is something to look out for as we study the Psalms together. What is the point of parallelism? Well, the parallel brings into sharper focus what something means. What does it mean that the Lord laughs in beginning of verse 4? He who sits in the heavens laughs. What does that mean? What type of laughter are we talking about? Is it because someone has made a cracking good joke that the Lord is laughing? Well, no, the next line makes clear what sort of laughter it is. It's the laughter of mocking. The parallel says the Lord holds them in derision. So you've basically got two parallel statements, which maybe think of it this way. They're like the two lenses of binoculars, that the convergence of the two lenses produces a sense of depth that you don't get if you've just got a telescope with a single lens. Okay, that was an aside about Hebrew poetry, but it's worth just knowing. So, the, so God laughs, the Lord laughs at this rebellion. Why does he laugh? Well, look at verse 6. He says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The rebellion of the authorities is pointless, it is laughable, because the Lord has appointed and established his own king on Zion, his holy hill. Zion, you see, is the hill on which Jerusalem was built. And David, King David, he was the anointed whom God appointed to rule from there. And after King David, there were a whole succession of kings in David's line. But each of these kings was a shadow of the coming anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the ultimate king that God had appointed. King Jesus has been appointed by God himself to rule. And because God has appointed him and established him, nothing can stop him. And so rebellion against him is futile, it is ridiculous, it is laughable. But notice what verse 5 says. It says, then the Lord, <coughs> sorry, then the Lord will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Three words there, wrath, terrify, fury. Why is Jesus being appointed by God as king? Why is that a terrifying truth for rebel rulers? Well, the answer is that God will not tolerate opposition to the king that he has appointed into his rule. And if you take on God and his king, it is not going to end well. And that becomes clear in the next section as we move from divine derision to global government. <clears throat> I will tell of the decree of the Lord... The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's going on here is the Messianic king is reporting what the Lord God said to him. So there in verse 7, the I and the me 
is the king that God has appointed. Did you see that? So it's saying, I, the king, will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, the king, you are my son. The Lord said to King David back in uh, 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, he said to him about his offspring, he said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. You see, the Davidic kings were called the son of God. That was their title. But this title was ultimately fulfilled in the ultimate king. Jesus the Christ, he is the son of God who has come from the father full of grace and truth. And so it is to Jesus Christ that ultimately these words have been said by God the Father. You are my son. You are my son. You may recall then in the gospel accounts that the baptism of Jesus, a voice from heaven declares these very words, this is my beloved son. Then again at the transfiguration on the mountain, a voice from a cloud says, again, this is my beloved son. But the supreme declaration of Jesus being the Son of God was at his resurrection. And so Peter says in Acts 13.32, he says, We bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Sometimes I guess that word begotten might puzzle us. We think, what does that mean, that uh, the Son has been begotten? It doesn't mean that God the Father gave birth to his Son at some point in time. The Son of God is eternal, just like the Father is eternal. So the Son is the Word that we meet in John chapter 1, who is in the beginning with God and who was God, and through him all things were made. But the resurrection of Jesus was the supreme declaration That he is the son of God. As Romans 1.4 puts it. It says he was declared to be the son of God with power. By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. The son was raised from the dead to rule. He's been exalted at the right hand of the father. And it was then that he began his reign. As the son of God. The ultimate messianic king. This past week, uh, we were interviewing at the lunchtime talks a guy called Michael Farmer. Uh, He's a self-made multimillionaire who's made his money in commodity trading in the city. So his hedge fund manages $2.3 billion of assets. It's one of the largest in the world. For the first 35 years of his life, God just did not feature. But then one night, all of that changed rather dramatically. So he was saying this past week, he was telling his story of how he woke up in bed one night, in the middle of the night, and he he heard this voice. He was awake and he heard a voice saying to him, Michael. And before his eyes he says that he saw a bright light and he saw the words, Jesus is the Son of God. And it struck him that if Jesus is the Son of God, it changes everything. And he just knew that this was true. And he says he went down to breakfast that morning, a changed man. And it's pretty freaky for his wife, wondering what on earth is going on. But he was a changed man, and 35 years later, he's still going on, following Jesus. And from that moment on, he just set himself to find out more about Jesus and what it means to live with him, given he is the Son of God. 
The fact that Jesus is the Son of God, it is a game changer for all of us and for our world. Because Jesus as the Son has been appointed to rule. His rule, you'll notice here, is global. So verse 8, God says to him, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The world belongs to the Messiah. It all belongs to Jesus. It's been given to him by God to rule over. And rule he will. Rule he will. Those who oppose him he will overthrow. So if you look at verse 9 it says you shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. His enemies will encounter overwhelming force. Absolute power. He'll rule with a rod of iron. So in Psalm 1 we have the wicked being driven away like chaff. And here in Psalm 2 they're like a pot that is shattered in pieces. I've got a book at home called Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? What image of Jesus do you have in your mind? Maybe the children's Bible Jesus, the lamb skipping around, the little children in his arms. Well, you know, that is true. He is like that with his children. But with his enemies, he is terrifying. This is the real Jesus. A conquering king who will wipe out all who oppose his rule when he returns in glory and power. Verse 9 here is quoted about Jesus in Revelation. In Revelation 12.5 and 19.15 which says this. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The rule of Jesus the Son of God is what has been decreed by God. And so it will happen. Jesus has been raised. He has been exalted to rule. The kingdom has begun. And it will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And nothing can stop that. Nothing can stop it. This is where the world is heading. This is where history is heading. It's not like a snail race that we began with at the beginning, where it's sort of anyone's guess. It's not like horse racing, where, you know, it's anyone's guess. Who should you put your money on? Who knows? It's not like an election, even, when you don't really know how things are going to turn out. This is different. It's saying the outcome is not in the balance. This is what is going to happen. Now, how should we respond? What should we do? Well, the final section tells us. If you have a look at verse 10. It says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Be wise. If we are wise, we will respond to this by submitting to God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will serve him, it says, with fear, with reverence, recognising his power. We will, as verse 11 says, rejoice in his rule, but with trembling, in awe of him. And we will, as verse 12 says, kiss the sun. So in the ancient world, it was an act of homage. It was a sign of submission, kissing the feet of the king, submitting to him. Now that is the wise response to so great a king. Wisdom. 
Wisdom is not the same as intelligence. You can, you, can have, you can be very, very intelligent, but be a fool. And many people are. It is sheer folly to reject the rule of this king. And so we should pray for those who are in authority. We should pray for them to be wise and to submit to the rule of King Jesus. And we need to make sure that we do so ourselves. And to carry on doing this, submitting to him. Assured that this is where history is heading. This is where things are going. People speak, don't they, sometimes about getting on the right side of history. You've heard lots of people using that phrase, getting on the right side of history. This is saying, well, this is the right side of history. This is where the world is heading. This invitation, this command to serve the Son, it is actually a merciful message from God. On Thursday this past week, I locked my bike up to a lamppost in South Quay, and I was in a meeting, came back from a meeting, to find a note had been attached to my bike from security down there, and it was saying, this cycle has been illegally parked, a note has been made of your details, further incidents may result in further action being taken. Now that is a merciful message. That is a merciful message. I didn't know that I'd parked illegally, but that doesn't matter. They were fully within their rights to have removed my bike, my lock, and taken the thing away. And I wouldn't have had a leg to stand on, and I wouldn't have had a bike to ride home on. They gave me a second chance. The end of, verse, uh, the end of Psalm 2 is basically a merciful message from God. It's a second chance. It's an invitation to receive Jesus as king before it's too late, before he returns. But notice the invitation comes with a warning. Verse 12, the psalm ends saying, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. The Lord, the Bible says, is slow to anger, but when the final judgment does come, it will come swiftly and it will come suddenly. And for those who haven't submitted to Jesus as king, it will be too late. And so the clear message is, do not mess with God. Don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Don't wait for the time when life becomes less busy, because it never will. Now is, today, now is the time, and today is the day. God calls us right now to take refuge in his son today. Do you see how the psalm ends? It says, blessed are all, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice that we are to take refuge from him, in him. Is that striking? We take refuge from him, in him. And Psalm 2 ends where Psalm 1 began, with blessing from God. And that is what God wants for us. He wants to bless us. And this is something we could receive, even today. Last week at the end of the service, someone did exactly that. They prayed to receive Jesus as their rescuer, as the ruler he is. And if you haven't done that, you could do it even today before leaving this building. And if we are those who have done this, the point is that we need to keep going. We mustn't be phased, we mustn't be intimidated by a world in rebellion against the Lord, in rebellion against his king. And if you're feeling discouraged, or you're feeling weary, or feeling anxious, or tempted, or drifting... May this big picture of where things are heading, may it bring us back to Jesus. To keep serving him, to keep living for him, assured of the fact that we are on the right side of history. And that this is where the world is heading.